to the book of Second Thessalonians. We'll be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is the activity is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So concludes the reading of God's word. Lord, would you bless now this preaching of your word to give us ears to hear and a heart to obey. Amen. How many of you went shopping on Black Friday? Don't be bashful. I'm not going to smack you. Yeah, okay. Very good. Well, I've noticed a strange phenomenon related to Black Friday, and that would be this. Have you ever noticed that you don't know you need something until it's on sale? (laughs) You tracking? Okay, so I didn't spend all of 2017 thinking that I needed a Dremel multi-tool kit right? But what happens? As soon as I open that ad, for example, and I see that the thing is 50% off, you know what happens? I need it, (laughs) right? I think of all the reasons why I have to buy it. But on the other side of the spectrum, there are also a host of suggested gifts I see advertised, and I think to myself, why in the world would anybody ever need that? And uh, Dave Barry from the Miami Herald is, is particularly helpful in this regard. Uh, his, his 2017 holiday gift guide included the following recommendation. Listen to this. Kitchen safe. This is the ideal gift to give when you want to express the joyful holiday message. You could stand to lose some weight. This is a plastic food container with a lock and a timer. Let's say you have some fudge and you don't want to eat anymore, but you lack the willpower to stop yourself. You can simply put the fudge in the safe, set the timer for the interval you want it, it can be one minute to 10 days, and press the lock button. Now your fudge is totally secure, because the safe cannot be opened until the time is up. Unless you get a blunt instrument and bash the safe open, which you will do within minutes because come on, it's fudge. 
that's one of those gifts that I read and I think, man, I'm sure that's helpful for someone somewhere, but there is no way I'm paying $54.90 plus shipping and handling on Amazon for a kitchen safe. I mean, if, it, if that sort of thing works for you, go for it. I, I'm just not really interested in it. If, if I need to lose some weight, I think I can take care of that without the hassle of a kitchen safe. So, so maybe it's, I mean, is it nice to have for some people? Maybe. <laughs> Please tell me if you buy it. I'd love to see how that works for you. But is it necessary for most of us? For me? I don't think so. Well, sadly, church, I think we can often have the same attitude. Nice? Maybe. Necessary? I don't think so. When it comes to something that is far more important than a kitchen safe, and I'm talking about theology and the doctrine of God or the knowledge of God, Now, some of you hear that word, theology, or sound doctrine, and you immediately get super excited. Some of you. You love theology. You love and prize sound doctrine. The the thought of spending a day shopping or watching football or spending a day reading the prolegomena to Herman Bavinck's reformed dogmatics is a no-brainer. You're going with Bavinck all the way. Some of you are like that, okay? I'll let you guess what I'm like. Some of you are like that. Hands down, you're going with Bavinck. But on the other hand, some of us hear the word theology or sound doctrine and we immediately start running in the opposite direction. All you can think about when you hear those words are, are arguments and, and conflicts and division over secondary issues that seem to have nothing to do with the essence of the Christian faith. I mean, it's all about Jesus, right? Why, why do people have to go talking about theology and, and sound doctrine and making things so complicated? It's simple, love God, love people. What would Jesus do? We're good. And I think quite a few of us probably fall somewhere between those two extremes. We wouldn't bash theology or Christian doctrine. We have a a general sense that it's important. Maybe you're grateful for, for pastor types who go to graduate school so that they can understand and teach the Bible. But theology, Christian doctrine, that's not really my cup of tea. Nice, maybe, necessary, not so much. I won't ask you to identify where you fall on that spectrum I've laid out. But I will warn you, friend. I'll warn you as Paul warned the church in Thessalonica, to neglect sound doctrine is to neglect the gospel and to neglect the Bible and to imperil your soul. I'll say that again. To neglect sound doctrine is to neglect the gospel, to neglect the Bible, and to imperil your soul. Why? Because an unwavering resolve to hold fast to sound doctrine is the distinguishing mark of the people of God. That's what separates those who are being saved from those who are perishing, an unwavering resolve to hold fast to sound doctrine. It's that serious. In case you didn't realize it, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which means 500 years ago last month, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther nailed 
95 theses or doctrinal statements to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany, effectively initiating a recovery of the truth of the gospel. By the way, that was the same gospel that Paul proclaimed to the church in Thessalonica centuries beforehand. Now, in thinking about the Reformation, as I make this connection here, it would be simplistic and wrong for us to think that Paul taught the gospel, the Roman Catholics lost the gospel, and the Protestants permanently recovered the gospel. That's simplistic at best. Because in reality, the church has been at risk of losing the gospel. At risk of abandoning sound doctrine for false doctrine from the moment of her inception. And you and I would be naive to think that we are immune to that danger. Because we live in a world that's filled with all manner of ideas about what is supposedly true, including all kinds of ideas about the things of God that are exceedingly attractive and terribly wrong. So I want us to end 2017 and begin 2018 as a church by looking in three directions, okay? I want us to look back, I want us to look in, and I want us to look forward. Okay, so follow me here. We're going to look back by spending the next few weeks studying the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, that the doctrinal legacy of the 16th century reformers is aptly summarized in the form of five theological convictions or statements or declarations of sound doctrine. And they were written originally and described and talked about in Latin. So here are the five. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. And Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Those statements capture the theological heritage of the Protestant Reformation. But, please hear this, in looking back on these doctrines, we are not primarily looking back on church history. We're looking back to the Bible. Why do I say that? Because the five solas were not just the theological heritage of the Reformation. Okay, they're part of the theological foundation of the word of God. That's why they matter. Okay, that they capture the most important Christian doctrines. Okay, doctrines that if, if you hold to them, if you believe them, they are what distinguish those who are on the path of life from those who are on the path of destruction. They really matter. Now, now why do I say it that way? Why do I say that it's, it's what we believe as opposed to how we live that separates those who are being saved from those who are perishing. Why do, why do I say that? Didn't Jesus himself say in Matthew 25 that we would be judged according to our works, whether good or bad? Why is what I believe, all this theology, doctrine stuff, Williams, why is what I believe so important? Well, here's why. Hear this, church. What you believe is supremely important because you can't separate what you believe from how you live. You can't drive a wedge between those things. They're hardwired together. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And it works like this, okay? What you believe about God in your mind inevitably determines how you feel about God in your heart. Your affections. And how you feel about God in your heart inevitably determines how you act toward God in your life. 
and how you act toward God in your life, both in the the big choices and the little choices, determine whether you're walking the narrow path that leads to life or the wide path that leads to destruction. Bottom line, your mind, your heart, and your will are inextricably connected. They're tied together. And that's why we're not just gonna look back on this series with our minds, but we're gonna look in. We need the Lord to take the truth of his word and those truths that were recovered during the Reformation and use them to search our hearts. We need God to reveal whether we are loving the truth that we claim to believe. And then we're gonna look forward because we need God to show us whether we are living the truth and how to live the truth that we claim to love. And so we're gonna preach through the five solas because I believe God wants 2018 to be a year church where as a congregation we are marked by three things. Believing what is true, loving what is true, and living what is true. God wants us to believe the truth, to love the truth, and to live the truth. That's why I'm excited to preach through the five solas. And I want to introduce this series by today simply trying to answer a preliminary question that I think we have to answer if we're going to have ears to hear what God wants to tell us over the next couple weeks. And that would be this question. Why does theology matter? Why does sound doctrine matter? Why is it important? Why is sound doctrine not just nice, but necessary, such that to neglect sound doctrine is to imperil your soul? Does that make sense? Why does theology matter? In other words, before we dive into sound doctrine, the theological heritage we've received from the Reformation, why should I care about sound doctrine at all? Why, why does it even matter? Well, that's where 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is so helpful. So let's give our attention to this chapter. Okay, part of, part of what prompted Paul to write this letter was a, a growing concern, a growing belief among the Thessalonian Christians that Jesus Christ had already come back. He'd already returned from heaven. False teachers were deceiving them into thinking, look at chapter two, verse two, that the day of the Lord had already come. So so Paul writes to remind them of what he told them previously, namely that the day of the Lord or the final day of judgment cannot happen until, look at verse three, the antichrist or the man of lawlessness is revealed. Jesus will not come back until the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is revealed. And in other words, we don't know everything that will happen leading up to the return of Christ. But we do know this, Jesus won't come back until the prophecies in the book of Daniel that we studied last fall, if you can remember all the way back, are fulfilled by the one, look at verse four, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, proclaiming himself to be God. So what does Paul tell us? He says that right now, we can be assured that that this climactic personification of evil, look at verse six, is restrained by the power of God. Restrained. Restrained. But when he's revealed, restrained no longer, look at verse nine, Satan will empower him with false signs and wonders through which he will deceive many people into worshiping him instead of worshiping the one true God. I'm moving really fast. But that's what Paul's saying. Now here's here's where I want us to linger. Consider this. Why will so many people be deceived and perish in their deception. Why? Look at verse 10. Here we get to the crux of the matter. 
Because they what? They refused to love the truth. And so, be right, be theologically correct, validate the degrees on their wall. No. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's really serious. And in response to the refusal, God, look at verse 11, afflicts them with a strong delusion under which they continue to believe what is false. In other words, he removes their ability to perceive the truth as a just consequence of their refusal, look at verse 12, to believe the truth. That's what God does. And thus their deception in the present becomes a foretaste of their judgment in the future. So notice two things here. Very important. First, notice the way Paul asserts both the responsibility of man, they refuse to love the truth, and the sovereignty of God. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. It's both. Second, notice the way Paul, listen to this. He equates loving the truth in verse 10 with believing the truth in verse 11. Do you see that? And believing what is false in verse 11 with taking pleasure in unrighteousness in verse 12. Okay, what's the point? Well, this is the point. You can't separate, as I said earlier, what you believe from what you love or how you love and what you love from how you live. Your your mind, your heart, your will, they are connected. They work together, especially when it comes to the things of God. So the prospect of God's judgment on those who what? Who refuse to believe the truth, hold to sound doctrine, is terrifying. And yet, the goal of Paul writing this letter isn't to terrify people. He's writing to Thessalonians. He's writing to comfort them. And he's convinced that they have nothing to fear. Why not? He's not worried about them. Why not? Look at verse 13. He's confident that they will be saved, not deceived. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and and belief in the truth. Notice that. So what's Paul saying? Okay, well, in modern casual American language, it might sound like this. All right, guys, you already chose to believe the truth. Don't stop. Stand firm, hold fast. Because if you continue to believe what is true and love what is true and live what is true, you won't be condemned on the final day. You'll be saved. So stand firm, hold fast, confident that the God who enabled you to first embrace the truth will be faithful to help you persist in abiding in the truth. That's 2 Thessalonians 2. That's the big picture. An unwavering resolve to hold fast to sound doctrine is the distinguishing mark of the people of God. That's why theology matters. It is what sets apart those who are being saved, those who hold fast, believe sound doctrine, from those who are perishing. The stakes could not be more important. And in verses 13 through 17, where I want to slow down and linger for the rest of our time this morning, Paul drives home that word of both comfort and exhortation by showing us what holding fast to sound doctrine actually looks like an action. Okay, so, so how, what does this practically look like, Matthew? Well, we're going to focus on verses 13 to 17. I think he makes at least two points here, and the first one is this. What, what does holding fast to sound doctrine look like in action? First, to hold fast to sound doctrine is to hold fast to the gospel. Okay, look at verse 13. In verse 13, Paul Paul reminds the Thessalonians of their spiritual testimony. He thanks God for them as those who are what? 
beloved by the Lord. Think about that. Friend, do you you realize if you're a Christian that, that the single most important thing about the Thessalonians is also the single most important thing about you? You know what that is? The God of the universe has set his affection on you. That's remarkable. That defined them in Paul's eyes. May it define us in our eyes as well. And God's love for them is the fountain out of which Paul recognizes in verse 13, every other spiritual blessing flows. Chief among them, what? God, he chose you to be saved. He chose you to be saved, guys. So so as the believers reading this letter to the Thessalonians represented in many ways the the first generation or first fruits of of Christians in Thessalonica, I, I have to point out that so too are many of you. You don't don't come from a long family heritage of God-fearing people. Now, some of you do, but many of you don't. You you are like the Thessalonians' first fruits. You can't attribute your faith to your family or the home you were raised in. But whether you're among the first fruits or not, brothers and sisters, please hear this, know this. The ultimate explanation for your salvation isn't found in your spiritual heritage, your moral conduct, or even your decision to trust Jesus as your savior. If you're a Christian, you owe your salvation first and foremost to the electing grace of God. Because if he hadn't chosen you, none of us would be remotely interested in choosing him. That is the ultimate explanation for our salvation. The electing grace of God. And Paul goes on to summarize two of the means by which our salvation becomes effective in our lives in the last part of verse 13. First, look at what he says. God shows you to be saved through what? Through sanctification by the Spirit. Okay, now, now when the Bible speaks of Christians being sanctified or made holy, it does so in two respects. Okay, and we have to think carefully here. One kind of sanctification, one kind of being made holy is progressive. It's progressive. It happens over time. Okay, that's, that's the process by which the Spirit of God makes us more and more like our Father who is in heaven over the course of our life on this earth. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 is a great example of that where Paul reminds us we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Okay, that's progressive, all right? The other kind of sanctification or being made holy is definitive. Happens at a point in time, at the beginning of your Christian life, okay? That's, that's the instantaneous act whereby the Spirit of God first imparts spiritual life into our hearts. Okay, he, he delivers us out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of God. It's the work that he does. He sets us apart, as it were, into the realm of the holy. That's definitive. Okay, it's what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says in verse 11, but you were washed... You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And I think Paul likely has both definitive at the beginning of your relationship with God and progressive over the course of it, kinds of sanctification, both of them, in view in verse 13, because both of them are the work of the spirit of God in our lives. And both of them are essential for salvation. And I think that sanctification by the Spirit is listed as the first means of salvation because it keeps the emphasis in the entire process where it rightly belongs. Where does the emphasis in our salvation rightly belong? On the sovereign grace of God. It keeps it there. And yet, focus on verse 13, the second means by which we are saved is not one bit less essential. 
God chose you to be saved second through belief in the truth. Belief in the truth. Okay, now, please hear this. We must not think of that word truth as a delightful fill in the blank. (laughs) Where we get to put in there and insert whatever we think or feel is true. Okay, that is doing violence to the word of God. Don't do that. Okay, the truth that must be believed in verse 13, if we're going to be saved, is the truth that God describes, Paul describes, in verse 14. Namely, look at verse 14. God's self-revelation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel to, to this, to what? To sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He, God, called you through our gospel. Through the gospel. So friend, think of it this way, okay? It's through the message of the gospel that God summons you to believe what is true. That's how God summons us to believe what is true. Why why do I say that? Because the call of the gospel, what's that? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the call of the gospel. That's not a call to embrace a cultural idea or a religious notion or, or to follow a moral guru, That call, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, is what? A call to believe the truth. Truth. Why? John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the Bible teaches us that some things are true and some things are false. They are not cultural constructs. They are reality. They are not linguistic concepts. They're reality. And that the great divide between them, what separates what is true from what is false, is what? What's the divide? What's the marker? It's the cross of Christ. I I love how John Piper says in his book, think that the cross of Christ is the continental divide between what is true and what is false. If if someone says, this is true, what do we do? We examine it in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. Does that statement agree with the facts of the gospel and the implications of the gospel? If it does, then we know it's true. If someone says, this is true, what do we do? We evaluate it in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. Does it agree with the facts of the gospel? Does it agree with the implications of the gospel? If it doesn't, then we know it's false. The cross of Jesus Christ is the continental divide between what is true and what is false. Now, now why do I say both the facts and the implications when I talk about the truth of the gospel? If you notice, I did that. Well, here's why. Because it's not hard to mentally acknowledge the facts of the gospel. There are plenty of people that believe Jesus was a real person who lived, died, and probably rose from the grave to make us right with God. But, but when it comes to the implications of the gospel, to, to the claim, the grab you by the shirt claim that the gospel makes on our, our sexuality, on our marriages, on our financial stewardship, on our practice of church membership, to to name just a few areas, well, then believing the gospel gets a lot harder. And yet, the implications of the gospel cannot be separated from the facts of the gospel. So, all that to say, look at verse 13, when Paul defines, we have to what? In order to be saved. Believe in the truth. He's simply calling us, verse 14, to believe in the gospel. But the gospel truth he has in view is far bigger than a set of historical facts. The gospel is not less than history, but it is far more than history in the sense that the gospel rightfully subjects every area of our life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Jesus in the gospel becomes the definitive revelation of what is true. 
continental divide, by the Lord of truth. And therefore, to hold fast to sound doctrine, to the truth, is to hold fast to the gospel. And to reject sound doctrine is to reject the gospel. Now, I've been a member of this church long enough to know that most of you in here didn't walk in here thinking, you know what, I'm considering whether I should reject the gospel today. In fact, I think if this goes well today, I may just reject all sound doctrine tomorrow. I don't think most of you came in thinking that, but, but I would argue, as I said earlier, that we're not immune to getting there. And here's what I'm talking about. Rejecting the gospel, abandoning sound doctrine, the only hope of our salvation, it rarely starts with outright rejection. It works like this, okay? First, we assume the truth. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know all that. That's boring. Tell me something new. That the truth about who God is and, and what he's done for us in, in Jesus on the cross, it, it ceases to bring joy and delight and gratitude to our hearts. But we're still singing. We're still raising our hands. Oh, God bless you, sister. But you get in your car and your joy isn't there. You're assuming it. Jesus has ceased to stir your highest affections and your deepest gratitude. And the years go by and before too long, you compartmentalize the truth. We assume it and we compartmentalize it. Which sounds like this. Yeah, 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 I know that Jesus stuff is true in principle. But, but in this situation, I'd rather do that. That looks good to me. That feels right to me. I, I'm not rejecting the truth. I've just stopped applying it. Or I only apply it when it's easy or convenient. And a few more years go by and we don't even really think about the truth anymore. And doubt and skepticism begin to creep in and, and, and we start wondering if all the things that we used to believe were true are actually true or maybe we were just drinking the Kool-Aid. And eventually a spouse or a family member asks a direct question that you can't avoid anymore and they look you in the eyes and say, do you even believe the gospel? And to their surprise and kind of our relief, because we're being honest, you simply say, I don't think so. And I'm not even sure I ever actually did. That is what happens when we fail to heed verse 15, church. When we fail to stand firm and hold to the truth of the gospel. I would be remiss if I did not stop and thank God that this church has been built on truth. Especially the truth of the gospel. But Kingsway, that strength will not last if we begin assuming or minimizing or neglecting the importance of sound doctrine will not last. And may God deliver us from such a deadly peril and strengthen our resolve to hold fast to the gospel. So what does that mean? That means take heed, pay attention if your gratitude for Jesus is beginning to wane. Okay, take heed, pay attention, ask a brother or sister for help if you recognize that you've stopped applying the gospel with the same diligence you used to. Look at verse 14. Heed the warning. Only those, only those who persist in believing the gospel will what? Will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The stakes could not be higher. To hold fast to sound doctrine is to hold fast to the gospel. It's the first means we do that. Okay? Here's the second. Point number two. 
Point number one was to hold fast to sound doctrine is to hold fast to the gospel. Point number two, to hold fast to sound doctrine is to hold fast to the Bible. Okay, look at verse 15. Every day I look back at this verse this week, it just got more and more remarkable. He does something, Paul does something breathtaking in here, okay? So, so look at this. So then, brothers, don't be like those who are perishing. Do this. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, pay attention to the logic here, okay? Follow me. We are saved, verse 13, through belief in the truth. And the truth that God calls us to believe is first and foremost, the truth of the gospel. That's verse 14. And to believe the truth of the gospel is to what? Verse 15, to hold fast to the traditions that you were taught, both by our spoken word, the preaching of the word, and by our letter. Now, when Paul says in the first century to the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians, and by our letter, what is he talking about? First Thessalonians. <laughs> okay, the first letter he sent them. And, and so notice in doing that, that Paul is simply saying, there are two things, two means, two things you have to hold on to if you're gonna hold fast to the gospel, hold fast to sound doctrine, and so be saved. You have to hold on to the right preaching of the word, and you have to hold on to the right reading and study of the word. Both the word spoken and the word written are essential if you're going to hold fast. So think about this. If you're going to be saved, you have to believe the truth, starting with the gospel. And if you're going to believe the truth of the gospel, then you have to believe the truth of the Bible including 1 Thessalonians and all the other books that were inspired by God. Why? Why? Why do you have to hold fast to the Bible if you're going to hold fast to sound doctrine and hold fast to the gospel? Here's the reason why. Because the word written bears witness to the word incarnate. The words on this page testify of the word made flesh. They're not separate categories. They're the same category. They reveal God to us. That's why we have to hold fast to the word. Did you remember Jesus' words? If you don't, I'll remind you. To his disciples in Luke 24, road to Emmaus. What did he say to them? Listen. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, the rest of it, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. By the way, that's the whole rationale for the Gospel Project curriculum that we're using in King's Kids right now. That the entire Bible bears witness to Christ. But that's not just true for our kids. That's true for us, right? The entire Bible, Old and New Testament alike, it bears witness to Jesus. And so to, so to hold fast to sound doctrine isn't just to hold fast to the gospel, to Christ. It is to hold fast to the Bible that bears witness to Christ. And quite practically here, we can't hold fast to the Bible if we don't know what it says. <laughs> And this isn't rocket science. You can't hold fast to it and therefore to sound doctrine and be saved if you don't know what it says. You know what that means? We have to read it and study it. We have to. There are so many areas of our life where if we want to hold fast to something, we don't bat an eye about making a plan and sticking to it. If you want to hold fast to financial health, what do you do? You create a budget. If you want to hold fast to physical health, what do you do? You follow a diet. Why is it that when it comes to the word of God, as soon as somebody asks a question like, what's your plan? We start, oh, legalism! <laughs> Why do we do that? 
Well, quite frankly, it's because there are a lot of other areas of our life where we would rather be disciplined than godliness. We need a plan. Now, praise God, you're, if you're a Christian, you're not clothed in the righteousness of your Bible reading. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're going to preach that. Solus Christus. It's coming. But hear this this morning, church. Why does theology matter? Because it's the distinguishing mark of the people of God. How do we hold fast to sound doctrine? Well, in large part, we do that by holding fast to the Bible, which means you need a plan for reading it and studying it. So in mid-December, I'm going to put out on our website several Bible reading plans that are designed to help you, if you don't already have one, hold fast to the word of God in 2018 by helping you know when to read it and what to read. And and I encourage you to look at one of those if you don't already have a plan for holding fast to the word. I'll put some other book recommendations out there that have to do with understanding God's word so that in 2018, we would be a people who what? Believe what is true. Because we're reading what's true and studying what's true. And my goal is not to set you up for inevitable failure and and condemnation. My goal is to simply make sure that we're doing everything we can to hold fast to sound doctrine. Okay? Holding fast to sound doctrine means holding fast to to the Bible. But that doesn't just mean holding fast to the word of God written, right? It also means holding fast to the word of God preached. So let's think about that for a minute. Okay, look at verse 15. The letter is no less important than the spoken word. How many times have you heard someone say, I don't need sermons. I don't need Christian books. I just need the Bible. Heard that? Thought that? Paul refuses to create a false dichotomy between the word written and the word preached. He says that if the preaching of the word is faithful, then all of it testifies to the glory of God in Christ and you need all the above, both the words that I wrote to you guys, Thessalonians, and the words that I preached to you guys. And friends, I would simply argue, we are no different. We're no different, okay? So without question, the primary place that God reveals the truth of the gospel to us is where? The pages of his word primary place. But we also need pastors and teachers who are willing to take the truth of scripture and help us understand what it's saying and apply it to our lives. You won't hold fast to sound doctrine without that. That's what Paul's saying. And and Acts chapter 2, the early church, is a great example of that. Why did the early church prosper and grow? Because they were devoted to what? What's the first thing on the list in Acts 2? The apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. So let me challenge you to do several things on this point and applying this point, okay? Very practical here. Remember that the most important thing that happens on Sunday morning is the preaching of God's word. The most important thing, okay? That means that you need to give whoever is standing in the pulpit your full attention. If, if, if that requires for you taking notes while someone's preaching, then take notes, okay? If that means turning off your smartphone or, or giving it to a friend so you're not distracted, give it to a friend. Say, hey man, give it back to me when we get out for coffee, all right? Well, whatever it takes, give the person preaching your full attention. And if you have to slip out in the foyer for some reason, come back quickly, Hey, don't get stuck in conversation out there. That this is the most important thing happening on Sunday morning. All right, and second, on this point of prioritizing the preaching of God's word, church, whenever possible, look for opportunities to plan your vacation or your travel schedules around Sunday morning. Okay, I'm not gonna be checking boxes and calling you if I don't see you on a Sunday. All right, again, we're not saved by our church attendance. We're saved by Christ. But at the same time, we can't hold fast to Christ and be saved if we're not regularly hearing the preaching of his word. 
We have to be practical. We have to have a plan. Hearing a sermon in your car isn't the same thing. It's simply not the same thing as hearing a sermon with the gathered people of God. There's something that God does corporately when we gather that's not the same as the way he meets us individually. And, and again, quite practically, if you have a sick child, you're out in a four, you're serving in King's Kids, thank you to all of you who are listening to this message this week because right now you're serving in King's Kids. Make a point to go back and listen to that sermon. Why? Because that's not just Matthew's thoughts on October the whatever. That's the word of God for you. That's God's means of helping you hold fast to him until the end. We have to hold fast to sound doctrine by holding fast to the Bible. Friends, to conclude, I'd simply say this. I've said this several times, but hear it again. Why does theology matter? Why why are we going to take five or six Sundays to look at the solas of the Reformation? Here's the reason why. Because an unwavering commitment and resolve to hold fast to sound doctrine is the distinguishing mark of the people of God. It's what separates those who are being saved from those who are perishing. And and we do that, we hold fast to sound doctrine by holding fast to the gospel and holding fast to the word. That's the whole point of 2 Thessalonians 2. But I'll conclude with this. The work that we have to do to hold fast is not where Paul ends. And so it's not where I'm going to end. Look at verse 16. Verses 16 and 17, Paul concludes this word of comfort and exhortation by directing the Thessalonians' gaze away from their work of holding fast and back up to God's work of holding fast to them. That is so important. Why? Why? Because Paul's confidence that they will hold fast to sound doctrine ultimately lies not in the resolve of men, but in the faithfulness of God. That's why he's confident that Thessalonians will hold fast. What does he say? Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, not you guys, Jesus, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Take heart in those words, friends. You have to hold fast to sound doctrine. You won't be saved unless you do, in your mind, in your affections, in your will. But do that with this confidence. Jesus Christ, if you are a believer, is holding fast to you. He's got you. And where you're weak, he's strong. And where you're faithless, he's faithful. So church, fix your eyes on Jesus. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold hold fast to the word. But do it with the sweet assurance that Jesus Christ is holding fast to you. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would give us that confidence now. as your people, and that as we sing this song, that you would do two works in our heart. You would renew our resolve in 2018 to hold fast to sound doctrine. And Lord, that we would do it with a new and great joy that you, Jesus, are holding fast to us. Thank you for that comfort, Lord. Thank you that our responsibility and your sovereign work are not opposites. They're not pitted against each other, but it's both. And that you preserve us by empowering us to hold fast to you. Thank you for that. Do that for this church that I so dearly love. In Jesus' name, amen.